I'm Joseph Dweck, and this is Humans Being. My guest this episode is Norman Lebrecht. Norman is a man immersed in the world of music. His blog, Slip Disc, gets over 1 million readers a month. He's written 12 books on music and is also a novelist. His first novel, A Song of Names, received the Whitbread Award in 2002 and was made into a feature film in 2019. Norman is a personal friend of mine and is a member of my synagogue here in Maida Vale. I wanted to speak to Norman about music, what it means to him, and to hear his perspective on how it gives our lives meaning. We discuss the transcendent quality of music, how and why it moves and lifts us like nothing else can. We spoke about genius, what it looks like, and how it manifests in people and society. We also spoke about the great changes in the music world with platforms like Spotify and YouTube that have made music of all kinds easily and readily accessible to billions of people and what that means to the value of the art. I'm always intrigued by Norman's insights and perspective on things, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Norman, I really appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation with me in my den. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, we know each other for about Seven years now, actually. And um, I, I met you because I came in to interview for the role I now hold with the Sephardi community here in London as the senior rabbi. And uh, one of the uh, lectures that I had given kind of on my tryouts touched on music. And so we started talking and I remember walking you home. You know, and then you kind of left your family and we kept walking, you know, because we're in an interesting conversation. In I think it was about rain. in in rain. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, good intro to London life. Uh, speaking about, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think we were speaking about Wagner's, uh, you know, delight in, in uh, agitating his audience. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, but, you know, you, you, you are a member of my community, mm-hmm. a very respected member of my community. And, and I remember you saying that, I mean, you are of Ashkenazi origin, yep. yeah? Is it German? Yep. Yeah. So, you know, one would wonder why it is you are in a Sephardi, Spanish, Portuguese community with very different customs. But you, you said, if I recall correctly, that, you know, I think it was a, a Yom Kippur, you know, a day of atonement, and you're walking and you hear music wafting out of the, <laughs> the windows of, of the synagogue. So I, I know you through music. Uh, there's so much more that you're involved with that we'll speak about, but I know you through music, and I also know that you know you started in a, an ultra orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Stamford Hill. How does that boy uh, coming out of Stamford Hill become an individual who has written several best-selling nonfiction books, who wrote a novel that is being made into a film, has been made into a feature film, who has the most popular uh, cultural news blog in the world with 1.7 million readers a month. Tell me that story. Well, it's a long story. Um, it's I, I grew up in Stamford Hill, which was mm. Stoke Newton, Stamford Hill, which is the ultra-Orthodox part of London, mm. in a very Haredi community, but a community that was imbued with the values of Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who preached ultra-Orthodox observance, but wanted his young people to go to university. Um, the idea was you could have the best of both worlds. You could have your absolute religious adherence together with a wide knowledge and appreciation of the world. And if that meant going to concerts and opera, you go to concerts, you go to opera, you go to, to theatre. But when later on, when I uh, we moved to Coldest Green, 
and I would go to Monk's synagogue there also, the same stream. And I noticed that at a certain time of year, they were singing on Friday nights, they were singing L'Chadodi to opera tunes. Tell us L'Chadodi just for everyone. L'Chadodi is, the, is the, the hymn that we sing for the welcoming in of the Sabbath on Friday night. And for a number of weeks each year, they're singing Mozart tunes. Really? Um, at Monks? At Monks, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, just for uh, our people, this is an ultra-Orthodox, <laughs> yep. you know, synagogue that's singing yep. Mozart for their, yeah. Yep. Okay. It's a community that's mostly made up with re- of refugees from Germany and Austria at that time. Mm-hmm. And only recently I discovered why this was. Um, that period of the year was the height of the opera season. It was also the period of Jewish mourning between Passover and Shavuot. And so the members of Monk said, we can't go to the opera we bring the opera into the synagogue. <laughs> wow. Um, so there was... The, I there, can't imagine there, them doing that today. And probably not. Yeah, no, so no, no. And when but, you were growing uh, up in Stamford Hill, it's the same kind of... Very much so. Okay. Very much so. I mean, it was, a, it, was, it was really quite a comfortable coexistence between the ultra-religious and the very secular world. There'd be a tremendous amount of religious learning. There'd be a tremendous amount of secular learning. We had a lot of books in the house that were not religious books, and 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 I grew up reading them. My mother died um, two weeks after my second birthday, and so I had you know a lot of time alone as a child, um, just reading the books that were in the house. My kids don't believe me when I say that I read Dickens when I was four, but when I was four, but I did. Really? Uh, yes. We had the whole so this was in the, the whole set in wow. blue-backed volumes, and you start at the beginning and you carried on until you came to the end, and then you stopped. Um, where I, are you? You have siblings. How? Where are you? I those? have three much older sisters okay. who brought me up in the first years after my mother died, okay. uh, of whom only two are still alive. Um, I was very much the youngest. I was the I was the post-war baby. Now, when you suffer a trauma of the kind that I did, you lose your mother. You're two years old. Uh, consciously and unconsciously, you're going to ask yourself why. And if you're raised in a religious community, then there really are only two questions. One is, do you accept this as God's will Mm. and just carry on? Or do you question God's will? And do do you try to find meaning in the thing that has befallen you and try to find meaning in life itself? And I think an awful lot of people in those circumstances accept what is given to them as God's will and they grit their teeth on the whole and they just get on with it. Mm. There is a great discouragement from questioning. So when it came to questioning things, I mean, I went to Yeshiva, to rabbinical college when I was 16 years old. Mm. Went to Jerusalem. Yeah. 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 Kol Torah. Okay. And after about a month there, I went to the Mashkiach Ruhani, the uh, spiritual advisor, the students, and said, yeah, I've been a month in this rabbinical college and I've lost all belief in God. Well, <laughs> I wonder if he was trained for that one. <laughs> but not surprising, given given the trauma and sure, the, and the sure, uh, sure, mm-hmm. and given given also the very very particular ambiance of studying in a yeshiva, mm. where everything is focused on text, on learning, on detail. Right. And so you know, I said, I've, I've lost mm-hmm. my belief. He said, but well, he said, just go back to learning; it'll return. Right. <laughs> Wow. Which, uh, in retrospect, what else are you going to say to a 16-year-old kid? Yeah, yeah I mean, let, let's talk Kierkegaard, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he gave probably the right answer in those circumstances. Obviously, I went back to, to, to my studies and it returned and then it went again. And at some point or another, it went completely. At some point, um, I realized that I was not going to be comfortable in this world unless I addressed it from a different aspect. What point are we at in your life? Are we, how old are we? We're, we're 19 years old. Okay. Um, my father has just died. Oh, my. So I'm really on my own in the world. Mm. Um, in a sense, those decisions that I was taking, they didn't feel like decisions that were taken. They felt like inevitabilities. This is, a this is where of, your life was where, leading you. This is where, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, it, almost as if it had been preordained. Yeah, I hear yeah. that. I hear that. Um, so somehow the divine was manifesting in your life, or you at least always, experienced it. Always, right. because always, because yeah. I I went through ten years of atheism. Ten years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Ten years of of non-observance. I don't think I've ever talked about this before. No, we did. But <laughs> well, there's a lot we haven't. <laughs> you know. So. Yeah. But I was probably the most. Um, my wife says I, I was probably the most. Religious atheist you'd ever know. <laughs> because um, if, uh, you know, when we first got to know each other, we'd, 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 you know, be invited maybe somewhere on Friday night. We'd go there on Friday night. Somebody would ask me to say kiddush, the, yeah. the, the, uh, the blessing over the wine, and I would refuse to do it. I, I, you know, I'd apologize. I didn't want to be rude. Uh-huh. But it would not be right or appropriate. It would, in fact, be sacrilegious yeah. if somebody from my standpoint, which is the standpoint of non-belief, of asserting that there is no God in the world, were then to make Kiddush that, that, that That's unacceptable. So you were an and atheist with integrity, you know. I, I you, suppose. Yeah. I suppose. Okay. I suppose. You, you respected but the the observance I, in that I, sense. Absolutely. That it was not for you. But, yeah. not, but that, at the time. It, yes. But it, it was not answering any, none of this was answering any questions for me. The atheism wasn't answering that many questions either. That sort of were way. they still burning? Of course. Okay. Of course. Of course. If there is life, there has to be meaning. If, if there is no meaning in in one form of living life or another form of living life, then one has to search for the form which has meaning, which enables you to feel that you are fulfilling a purpose and doing it with integrity. Um, Those are some serious terms we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about meaning, purpose, and integrity. I mean, yes. this is the stuff that just gets me all excited. <laughs> you know, those are the terms that make... So, I mean, you know, there were guys around me who were guys, girls, whatever. I mean, you know, people I was going to university with who were going to go about their lives and they were going to meet partners and they were going to settle down, they were going to earn a living and they were going to carry on until they were 80 and then curtains. Yeah. And Which was not for you going to work. Nope. Okay. Nope. No, yeah. no. If if I couldn't find purpose, um, I dropped out of two universities. Yeah. I'm a serial dropout. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Doing um, pretty well for a serial, serial <laughs> dropout. So you're, what are you studying at university? I mean, I, I imagine that's part of the search. Yeah, of course. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, so I started out studying sociology, psychology. Okay. Um, sociology seemed to me a completely synthetic American invention mm-hmm. of very little application. Psychology I was studying because I would have thought it might help me understand myself. Right. Um, I dropped out of that after a couple of years. Um, I'd started working. I then went to the Hebrew University because there was a professor there called Leo Goldberg who had opened my eyes to Russian literature. I'd never been able to read Dostoevsky in English 
But her Hebrew translations of Dostoevsky were so vivid, they were so lyrical, they were so absolutely astonishing. Um, and this is because the syntax of modern Hebrew is taken pretty much unchanged from the Russian. Really? So, that's for another podcast, Norman. <laughs> There's a, I'm, I'm resisting the urge to follow that little okay. path. So, yeah. uh, and Lara Goldberg was she was a fantastic poet. She translated uh, verse from several languages into Hebrew. She was a polymath, and I thought this is somebody at whose feet I need to sit. Uh, so I registered at the Hebrew University to, to do an MA with her in comparative literature. Unfortunately, she. Um, she already had cancer and she died three months later. So I dropped out again. I mean, there wasn't anybody else I Is wanted to traumatic? study with. Um, it was incredibly disappointing. Wow. It was horribly disappointing. I actually write about her in Genius and Anxiety mm-hmm. because she she came into the story in a different way. When I was living in Jerusalem, there were people who talked about a mad woman beggar woman, practically, who lived on cafes and in the street, who said that she was the greatest poet in the German language. And her name was Elsa Lasker Schuler. Mm-hmm. And she was actually the greatest poet in the German <laughs> so, so she was humble. She knew what she was. She, was, she, knew, she, was she, she knew what she was. And she'd, um, she'd come to uh, Jerusalem in 1939 and immediately wanted to go back. But it was too late. It was the wrong year to get a, get a passage back to Switzerland, where she'd been living at that time. And she was completely impoverished and had no one in the world. But she had a great romantic fantasy, both about her friends and about characters in the Bible. And she wrote the most astonishingly colorful and direct uh, poetry about biblical characters and the people around her. Mm. And um, she is acknowledged today as the greatest female poet in German of the 20th century. She died in Jerusalem in 1945. And I hadn't known this until I was working on Genius and Anxiety. Leah Goldberg was a huge admirer. And she would see Lasker Schuller sitting in a cafe in I mean, in, she was so impoverished. She couldn't afford a room that had a bed. Um, she could only afford a room that had a chair. That's what she would sleep in, a woman in her 70s. Oh my. And, you know, she lived off practically off charity. And Leah Goldberg chastises herself that uh, she's living in too much comfort uh, because you can't be you can't be <laughs> and then you can't be a proper poet unless <laughs> unless you do live in a life of such asceticism as Elsa Lasker Schuler <laughs> in creativity in the development of art um, music is there a divine in it is there a difference between high art and low art is there a difference between design and art? Where, what makes any aspect of creativity, of arts, great? We haven't got long enough for that. No. I mean, that, it, it's, that, that's a huge question. What makes any piece of work transcend the essence of what it is? What makes um, a thousand-word article memorable or forgettable? Um, what gives work a an element mm. that raises it above the ephemeral? Um, that's a, a huge, huge subject to discuss. But one of the aspects of it 
is you the say purpose. that as though it's it's a given. Do you believe that? Oh that, yeah, yeah, oh, that's a given. No, of course it is. Right. Right. Of course it is. Okay. Of course it is. You know, you can't point to a work like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and say um, that is on the level of some rap album that was released last week. Uh, it isn't. It's the culmination of one of the greatest minds in music at the point where he reaches transcendence. And that is a, a work that has already lasted the test of time and that will exist as long as there is humanity on Earth. What happens to the rap album is of no concern of mine of yours. Um, th- there are, yes, there are, there are levels, there are degrees, but it's the purpose for which it's written. Well, here is we the, have the word again, doesn't it? Yeah, it comes back absolutely, again. It's absolutely that. What are the revelations for me in Israel when I arrived there as a mid-teenager, 16 years old, going to Yeshiva, and then not being Yeshiva, then going to university, um, was that in that time, in the mid-1960s, nobody really had anything much. And anyway, there was nothing much to buy in the shops. It was a pretty you poor mean materially? Materially. Yeah. It was a pretty poor country. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wore the same shirt. It was all made in the same factory out in Kiryat Atta outside Haifa. <laughs> but in the absence of materialism, everything was invested in the mind and in emotion, in the intellectual life and in the and 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 social life and spiritual life. And so people had the most intense relationships of all kinds. And of all the most, kinds. Yeah, oh yes. It sounds like there's nothing holding them down. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Because you're not bothered by, you know, why am I going to go out and earn another $1,000 if I've got nothing to spend it on? Or 1,000 lirot as it was then, if I've got nothing to spend it on. So forget about earning it. Go to the cafe and sit there with Leo Goldberg and, and you will be transcended. You'll be transported. You will be in a world of the mind and a world of possibilities that are not limited by whatever is in fashion that week, that month. Um, and this, this was incredibly exciting for me. It was romantic. I was, um, I realized after the Six Day War that it, this had been blown away by um, the elation of conquest and by the new materialism and that the country was never going to be the same again. And indeed, never was, never has been. The only time I've ever come across a society like that was East Germany after the wall fell. Because they'd been locked in in the same way as Israel had been before 1967. They were a police state, they were a communist state, um, but the people who lived there were not necessarily um, supporters of the regime and they didn't want to have the regime intruding more than it had to on their lives. So they developed an independence of mind and an independence of connection with others, which was similarly intense and similarly Attractive, which is counterintuitive, me. yeah, in such a situation. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting, yeah. But it's how human beings operate under yeah. the mission. So, in the matter of creativity and how art is created and how art functions, often it's under adversity, and um, and yes, adversity can produce great art. I'm not sure that material comfort necessarily produces great art. Mm. It encumbers, um, would you say that it encumbers to a degree? It distracts. It gives you too many choices. If you have too much money, you, you think, well, how many houses should I have? George, should I buy this, this house or that house? Where should I go? Where should I be going for holiday? Um, what kind of clothes should I be wearing? Um, how am I spending enough on my children and grandchildren? And if you don't have that much, 
then you ask yourself bigger questions. Uh, you ask yourself questions about function and purpose. And these were the questions that you were looking for since yeah. you were a 16 yeah. you know, and yeah. younger. Yeah, yes. So do you yeah. find, would it be fair to say that you find in a sense that there is a certain lightness necessary to be able, to, of, of materialism, of, you know, of asset perhaps, you know, mm. physical asset mm. that, allows, that allows a rising, that allows an experience of transcendence. And is that transcendence, is that an integral ingredient of art? Can you have art without it, I guess I'm asking. I think the first thing you have to have is some kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, in my sense, it was a freedom from my background. Um, freedom from your background? From my background, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I had to liberate myself from the religious world that I'd grown up in. Mm-hmm. Because within that world, there are far, there's so too many constraints and more than constraints there are expectations mm-hmm. you are expected to perform certain things and in certain ways so that clearly wasn't going to happen i was probably happiest when i was about 19 or 20 and i think i had one pair of pants and maybe two shirts mm-hmm. and i was living in israel and i certainly didn't have socks because i didn't need them um and uh i had just about enough to eat but i had plenty of paper mm-hmm. um so i was able to write i was able to find the beginnings of self-expression um, and then find the means of making a living by going into media and and starting a kind of career. Uh, but those the beginnings, those that sense of of not being concerned with the things that weigh people down. Um, if you ask me the interest rate, then I wouldn't have known. I'm not sure that I know it now. No. <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere in between and along the line, I must have known. Um, so so it, it, it's that kind, it's the freedom to live a life of the mind. Mm-hmm. That's what's important. And would you say the spirit as well? I wonder, do you equate mind no. with spirit? I, I, you know, that's such a yeah. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer because once you go into spirit, then you go into the question, the 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 Hebrew neshama, mm. um, and then you go into Gilgul neshamot, and then you go into the well, question the of whether is there is breath in its concrete. Yes, it is. Yeah, but but yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you go into the question is of of the transcendence of the soul mm. and the existence of the soul outside of the body, and do we live one life or many lives? And is mm. is this is this the only physical life that we are going to be aware of, or is there going to be some other that we may become aware of after death? And all of those questions have seemed to me seem to me purely speculative, I because see. we don't know. So would you say that spirit is not necessarily part of your? experience of the of art of music of the of the creative world would you go so far as to say that or that the are these are two different mm-hmm. uh realms perhaps it's this is the, uh, i may be touching on things that are too broad to uh yeah, to dabble they, they're um they're a part of the mystery mm-hmm. if you look at some of the great works of western civilization you would have to include um, the cantatas and the masses yeah. written by Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm-hmm. Bach was an employee of the city of Leipzig. He would yeah. come into work on a Monday morning and they would say, Herr Bach, we need another cantata by next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he's fine. He's very spiritual. A, yeah, exactly. Uh, very he's got a deadline. Yeah. He turns that out. And then if he has any spare time, mm-hmm. then he'll write something for his local cafe 
in the evening where he and a few guys can get together and strum along. And they're called the Coffee Cantatas. And they're very nice. Is one more spiritual than the other? Who knows? They're both written to a, a kind of deadline. They're both written to a function and a purpose. Mm. If there is a purpose, mm. then there may be meaning. Mm. Um, without purpose, there is no meaning. But, but you're uh, always at home in the music. Yeah. You yeah, lived in it. Really comfortable. Yeah. 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 I mean, like the air you breathe. Um, and you know when it's good music or bad music. You know when it's well done or when it's not done. You know you pick out a wrong note. At, at, at I know that experience. Yes. yes. <laughs> like, ah, I yes. had a teacher, you know, Rafael El Nadav. He was yeah. one of the best uh, in Arabic music mm. um, in the Jewish world. But, you know, we we studied with him. He studied in the conservatory, you know, quarter notes and Eighth, eighth notes, and, yeah. you know, on on paper, which most most of the time it's done, you know, just by ear. And he was like really uh, invested. And we would we would sing, and anytime anyone would be off, he would hit his ear <laughs> and then look at you like we wanted to die when he yeah. looked at you. Yeah. But it's just it just takes one note to be off. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're swimming in this, and yeah. exactly. And and you know, if it's a wrong note. I take it personally. Yeah, it's an aberration. It's an yeah, aberration. It, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it is, it's, it's an offense against mm -hmm. God's creation. It is. Right? But there you go. <laughs> You've brought God into this now, Norman. There you go. Be careful. Yeah. You're tiptoeing no, around so, it, yeah. and there he is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if the world exists, it exists in some kind of harmony. There mm. has to be a system that enables it to function in this way. So as I'm coming to the end of my 20s, I'm more and more interested in music, listening more and more intensely to music and asking more and more questions about it. Why a particular phrase moves me in a certain way, why a particular combination of notes or a particular chord works in conjunction with others to stimulate an emotion or to stimulate some intellectual response. And nobody seemed to be asking these questions and nobody seemed to answer them. So I thought I'd Better make that my quest and find out how that works. And because I'd come from this background of news values, news what are, what are news values? News values are a bunch of people sitting together at a table at 10 o'clock in the morning and asking themselves what is going to be the most important things to give to our viewers at 10 o'clock tonight or to our readers at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. What do we decide are the most important things going on in the world? So I'd come out of this, this system of news values along with all the other ethics that I'd absorbed. And it was quite useful because in terms of talking to newspapers about issues in music, I could quickly see what might be of, um, of wider relevance. And suddenly, you know, they were putting stories about music on the front page of the Sunday Times, which I'd written, so hmm. it was great. Um, was this helping you with your search for purpose and meaning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music is a great, it's a great means of understanding how we interrelate. Mm. There are many people who will tell you that the greatest work that's ever written is Bach's Goldberg variations for solo piano or Beethoven's Diabelli variations, also solo piano. For me, it always involves two people. It always, always involves more than one. If you listen to the Concerto of Two Violins and Orchestra by Bach. What you're hearing is the possibility of coexistence. You're not hearing two violins trying to strike sparks off each other. You're hearing two people trying to see if they can get along in the same room. They can't afford another room. Hmm. They're living in one room. Are they gonna be able to negotiate something within this space together? And then if you happen to listen to certain recordings, 
where the two soloists have a relationship of some sorts, you may hear something altogether different. If you listen to a recording by David Oistrach and his son Igor, you are hearing an anatomy of the father-son relationship, of how far the son can go to challenge the father, how much the father needs to accede to permit the son's development. Um, th- th- these, these are works of immense psychology. So they're not just pretty music that you listen to as background. They, they give us the deepest possible understanding of how our most valuable relationships work. Hmm. How is your relationship with God at this point? Well, I, I think the end of my 20s is another of the reasons that I came back to music. Um, the end of Did my music 20s, help that? No, there were parallel streams. Parallel streams. Mm. It's the time in your life when you're forming a relationship, you're thinking of starting a family, and in thinking of starting a family, you're also asking yourself questions about how do you want to raise children? Clearly not in the way that I was raised. Don't want to go back down there. Um, You want to give them options and possibilities. But I suppose one of the first questions was, does one raise a child with God? in his or her life or not. Um, And obviously it has to be yes. Obviously. 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 Tell me why. I'm going to press you on that. Because if you don't, you're depriving the child of a fundamental understanding of structure. Without God? Yeah. I think, you know, you have to give them an idea. They're going to ask where this came from, where that came Mm -hmm. from. you can't say, I don't know to every question. You can't say, oh, it could have been this theory, it could have been that theory to every question. It's easier to say to a child, the universe was created. It was created by a superior intelligence, which we call God. Uh, God has a relationship with us, with each and every one of us in our lives. That's, as it were, that's the, the reshidat mm-hmm. of understanding. That's the beginning of talking to a child about the world. Um, and then the child can then form his or her own experience of it as he goes along. But so I, it was also easier for me, I mean, to be completely truthful. Mm-hmm. By this time, after 10 years of atheism, mm-hmm. it was easier for me to understand the world as a function of God's will mm-hmm. than the opposite. And, With, and the opposite being? Chaos. Chaos. Yeah. Yeah. What does that do to, uh, you know, 10 years of atheism? Uh, Genuine question. Does that, where does that place you as an individual in the world? Are you taking the place of the, of the will that you're speaking about? I mean, how, how, what place do you hold in a world that is without a higher power or a divine or what have you? I think my experience was one of quest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw myself very much as Don Quixote without without a Sancho Panza. Mm-hmm. You know, I was out there trying to work it out for myself. And I was obviously going to make some big mistakes along the way. And I was, I was going to fall into some pits. But um, since the guidance that I'd had until that point didn't satisfy me, um, I was going to have to try other routes. Um, some of them haphazard, some of them more considered. On the whole, I would say it was 
it was a good process. It was a proper quest. It got me reading in much wider circles than I might otherwise have done. And it, it, it sort of prepared me for the next stage in life, um, for the stage of being a, of having a family of my own and of being able to answer some of my children's questions. Yeah. You know, there's this. As I'm here listening to you, it 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 uh, it reminds me of this very interesting midrash. This this, this you know this uh, insight, the rabbinic insight, you know, into into some of our biblical stories, in where um, Moses uh, marries the daughter of Jethro, who is the uh, he's the Kohen Midian, he's the priest mm-hmm. of Midian, uh, and he, in our tradition, is a man that sought every kind of religious worship in his life. And uh, when Moses marries Tzipporah, his Jethro's daughter, the one condition that Jethro has is he says to Moses, your first son needs to be given the same opportunity that I had in life. He has to explore everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I read this and I am shocked that <laughs> this is in our, in our, you know, in our repertoire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating that that's for every person. It's interesting listening to your story because you know, you said at the very beginning that you now look back and see the divine guiding you mm. in this whole in this whole course, and it happens to be that in your life you were, you know, the space was open up for you yeah. to to do this exploration. And every life is different, um, but there's there's something about you know the openness of exploration, which uh, understandably concerns you know many who are kind of trying to hold the fold intact which is extremely important you know that we do but there's this this you know this definitely this concept of of the openness of of exploration i i wonder if i could if i could bring you to some of the work that you are are spending time on you know you wrote this book genius and anxiety which focuses on Jewish genius, you know, uh, in um, and and how it changed the world at the end of the nineteenth and beginning of the twentieth century. You are doing work now on, I think, the entirety of Beethoven's <laughs> repertoire, studying everything that he's that he's written, the various recordings. Tell me the numbers on that again. Uh, yeah, um, Beethoven wrote about two hundred and fifty works, mm-hmm. um, and there are about fifteen thousand recordings, yeah. and I'm doing a critical analysis of all of them. As one does. As one does. <laughs> As one does. And it, it yeah. is, it, it's a wonderful act of immersion. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think about genius. Hmm. I mean, would you call Beethoven a genius? Of course, yeah. Of course. Of course. So what, what, what is genius? Right, let me give you a few examples. It's mm-hmm. very difficult. It, it's, it's, one know, I, I, it's, it's one of those big questions. It's one of those questions. I mean, this is... I, but then I, again, I'm, you started with purpose and meaning. I didn't yeah. know that. So, well, I'm just following your lead. <laughs> I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I made a resolution a few years ago that I was only going to write books about things that I've been thinking about for at least half of my life. So, um, you know... Ad me after swim, as we say. 120 years. I... <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and, and this is one of them. Um, how do ordinary individuals turn into extraordinary or are they born extraordinary? Which, which is the, which is the, which is the actual flip? I grew up in a community where the rabbi was a phenomenal charismatic personality, blonde beard, blue eyes. Um, he saved at least 20,000 lives, children's lives in Europe before and immediately after the Second World War. He, he rallied. He, the, there is one thing that I go by, which is, which is a lesson that he taught. 
when I was very young, and maybe I didn't hear it from him, maybe I just absorbed it at home. Um, and he said, if the idea, if the idea is right, the money will follow. Never ask, how is this going to be financed? Hmm. If you're on the right track, if lives need to be saved, if, um, if something needs to be done, the money will follow. And that's very much been a guiding principle. It's always seemed to me that he was, he was, he was one of those geniuses for the moment. In the period of crisis, he did what nobody else in this country and very few and any others did. He simply went out and he plucked. He plucked souls from the burning. Hmm. And untold numbers of people owe him their lives and their families. Wow. In peacetime, he was at a bit of a loss. Yeah. <laughs> he needed a... Kind of like Churchill. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Churchill said I was born for this moment. Yeah. Yep. Um, was he a genius? In his way, yeah. 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 The other kind of genius, we had at my yeshiva, the head of the yeshiva was Rosh Lomazah who was one of the great halachic deciders and analysts of his time. And we used to get one shiur from him a week. And we used to prepare for it. I mean, my God, we prepared for it. And when we're going to that shiur, you'd be addressing the whole of the This yeshiva. is a lecture. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You'd, be, you'd be addressing the whole of the yeshiva in that big hall, and I'm 16 years old, and I'm thinking there, and I think, yeah, I'm up for this. <laughs> <laughs> and you would, and he spoke the most beautiful Hebrew. And um, you would follow roughly up to the middle of the third sentence. And by the, after that, he's lost you. He's just <laughs> lost you. He's gone off into a, a riff, not hmm. the rabbinic riff, but the other kind of, yeah. the, the musical riff of intellectual association mm. that is so far beyond your cognizance. Mm. A, a kind of... So he's um, transcended. He has transcended. He has transcended. And that too is genius. Is it art? In its way, yes. Hmm. Yeah, in its way. So when it comes to music, what you're looking for is firstly the extraordinary, Hmm. and then beyond the extraordinary, the transcendent and the eternal. The Hmm. eternal being the opposite of the ephemeral. Hmm. And that absorbs me, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it absorbs you in in the Talmudic study hall. Yeah. It absorbs you in the music hall. Yeah. It absorbs you essentially where you where it is that you find it. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you know, this this COVID period has been particularly hard for all sorts of reasons. I mean, not just for Is reasons. it touching on these no. things oh, for you? Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah, so. Because it's destroyed the nature of community and of communication. Community and communication are of course the same thing. Mm. Any word that begins with com is from the Latin, meaning with. It mm. puts us together. Um, if you look at it in terms of German or the Saxon, it's Gemeinde. Gemeinde is Gemeinsam. It's being together. Um, so the communality that we have as, as a religious community is mirrored in the communality that we have in the musical world, where in order to make music, you need at least two people. You need somebody to make it and somebody to listen yeah. Um, and preferably you need 2,000 people and about 100 of them are going to be on the stage playing instruments. And if you can't do that, then you have gutted mm. 
a vital element of civilization, and civilization is the rock upon which we are founded, because without it, we're beasts in the field. That came from your gut when you just said that. I mean, I see that this really is really disturbing you. So not to be able to walk Mm -hmm. into a rehearsal room, not to be able to walk into a concert hall, and to hear people making music together, to hear people being together, affirming Mm -hmm. their civilization, which is affirming their humanity, It's a kind of, uh, what is it? It's a, it's a mourning for generations. Mm. And how are we ever you going to recover Do you think this is going to reverberate for some time? I think it'll reverberate forever. Forever? I think we will emerge, I think we'll, we'll emerge from this completely changed, perpetually changed. Do you think it'll, are you sure that it'll be for the worst? Do you feel that it'll be for the worst? No, because I'm fundamentally an optimist. Same. <laughs> I mean, I have to I, say, I do, I do have <laughs> great, I, I feel what you're saying, you know, and I, I wonder about the, you know, the Zoom communities that we've been forced to. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, uh, you know, it kind of spreads beyond the physical borders. Mm-hmm. But I would have to, I, I definitely know personally, and I'm sure many people listening know personally, the the transcendent, the emergent um, experience, even the eternal, Mm. of people coming together um, and connecting and this meta-cognitive experiential entity uh, comes in. You know, it it, it is something that, that does not necessarily happen on a on a Zoom experience, there's there's something that is missing. There's an ingredient that's missing that we that's do right. not have. That's right. um, although I will say, um, and I'm not saying that you disagree to this. I, mm-hmm. I hear this, you know, the affirmation essentially in this. I'm interested in your thoughts, but I do have great faith in the human condition and the human spirit. Again, mm-hmm. there's that word. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, you know, we've spoken about spirit. I will say, for me, I've I maybe I've watered the term down a bit for myself, but for for me, spirit means the the flow of divinity in the world. Mm-hmm. And when I say divine, I am talking about the transcendent, that which is beyond us, beyond our known world, our world that is that is, you know, in our consciousness, mm-hmm. but nonetheless kind of impinges upon us, where we recognize something that is not us, not made by us, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, you know, flows through mm. us. And so, you know, you we've been dancing around this a bit. Mm. You know, when when we were talking about the the poverty or being stripped down or the ascetic in where it kind of gives space for this flow of transcendence, creativity, touching something beyond my encumbered local conditions. I have faith in the in the human spirit in that mm. sense that mm that it can be held down for some time, but not inevitably. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, do you, does that, how does that strike oh, you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because this, this is another element which we may never lose, must never lose sight of. We are built of continuity. Mm. If you remove continuity, you've removed our spinal cord. We have nothing. Mm. Um, if a part of the rational part of my belief in God, is that it is the oldest thing that we know. It's the oldest idea that we know. Quite so. It takes us back to the dawn of time. Quite so. Um, and possibly to 
before time. We don't we don't know, but but it it gives us this continuum. Without continuum, we're nothing. Without continuum, there's no music. Um, and there's certainly you've no, just got a bunch of notes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we have to have this this chord running through everything that we do. When we are aware of the chord, when we're in touch with the chord, we feel what we call content or happy. Mm. And when we don't, we're agitated and 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 dysfunctional. Mm. Um, and if you or I want to call that God, I'm comfortable with it. Mm. Or perhaps a manifestation. I don't know if that is God, but certainly it. a manifestation. You see it in so many different ways and in so many unexpected ways. Yeah. Um, and, and music teaches us a lot of those ways. But just, you know, just to give one immediate, recent, very painful example, we lost my niece last week to cancer. I'm so sorry. And she was the first of the next generation, but because my sisters are so much older than me, she was very close to me in age. She was nice. seven years younger. Yeah. And it occurred to me... As we were going through these stages of, first of all, trying to say goodbye in COVID times, mm. how do you do this? And then of losing her, she was the first baby I'd actually played with. I was almost seven when she was born. And everything I know about babies, everything I know about enjoying babies, my own children, my grandchildren, comes from that primal experience. Everything that we know and that we enjoy in life comes from a primal experience probably in infancy and possibly in the unconscious. Mm. And if we can't cling to those continua, mm. um, then our lives are chaotic and meaningless. Mm. Every time one discovers a continuum like that, mm. just thinking of my niece as she was as a baby, as she was as a little girl, as she was when I took her hand when she was two or three years old and walked her around the corner from one, one of my sisters to the other, those things give me the comfort, firstly, in appreciating what she has given me, and secondly, in the sense that her life is not just confined to the 65 years that she spent on Earth, mm. but that it has a broader spectrum, a broader continuum. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I hear you, Norman, as you're, as you're sharing that. What strikes me um, in your formulation of continuum, you know, I'm picturing, I'm a very visual person, mm. so I'm, I'm picturing this line, mm. yeah, you know, of, of continuity. Of, um, and I, it just dawned on me that that, you know, in your speaking of comfort is mm. essentially also the way that, you know, we tend to look at hope. The, the the word for hope in Hebrew is kav, yes. literally yes. a line. I mean, it's tikva, tikva, yes. the yes. line. Yeah. And it strikes me that what you're what you're essentially saying is that this line that draws all the way back to the dawn of time mm-hmm. also is a trajectory forward. That's right. And that that Absolutely. essentially what we're tr- what we are seeking again back to the questions of purpose and meaning is how do we get online, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do we get on that line? Yeah. Yeah. Of that yeah. trajectory that yeah. that stretches back to the con- to the dawning of time, mm. extends unforeseeably into a future, but nonetheless we know it because we know it's past. Yeah, yeah. and therefore we we we, um, and it's so interesting because you know if we do bring you know to me I I think of it as as is that not the flow of the divine that you know we've kind of been toying with talking mm. about engaging mm. in this idea of of you know this this great cosmic concept perhaps of god as it as somehow runs through 
yeah, runs through us, runs through thing, runs through, and that that essentially in our experiences of the arts of Shlomo Zalman, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach yeah. giving yeah. a lecture in, a, yeah. in Talmudic Hall, yeah. uh, him rising, yes. um, that we somehow see the shimmering of that line run through, yeah. It's knowing that there is something beyond yourself. And why is that important? But why is that? Because Kav Kav and Tikva is not just line, it's aspiration. Okay. Okay. Because it extends, Kav extends into the unseen. Therefore, you have to go with it. If you have an idea of there being a Kav somewhere above your head, like there, you know, it's like, like probably at school, at gym, they made you do the high jump. Yeah. Well, and you brought not it. me, particularly. You, <laughs> I wouldn't have you, made it over the, <laughs> over the line. Because yeah. like me, you brought a doctor's note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have so okay. much in common, Norman. It's amazing. <laughs> so you will remember that if ever you were imprudent enough yeah. to jump over this bloody thing, <laughs> they would then raise the bar. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you had to jump over something that was even higher. Yeah. But in a way, that's how we live our lives. If, yeah. if, we, if we have hope and we have aspiration, yeah. Yeah. then we constantly want to do better. We want to go higher. Yeah. And we want, to, we want yeah. to go with that line wherever it's taking us. There are other aspects. And those aspects of contradiction, contradiction and self-contradiction is immensely important. Mm. Was it Thoreau who said, mm. I contradict myself, therefore I contradict myself? Um, <laughs> um, yeah. um, we are not uh, unitary creatures. Our mind does not function in a simple, singular way. Mm. The way that our mind works is not singular. We love but we don't just love, we also resent, we may also mm-hmm. hate, we may have shades of love, we may have contradictions of love. Mm-hmm. Um, the best example that I can give you in music, I mean, one of, the, one of the best things in music is the way that it was opened up by a man called Gustav Mahler mm-hmm. to reflect more than a unitary way of storytelling. You know, up to Mahler, you, if you think of a symphony that tells a story, it's... Man gets up in the morning, oh, what a lovely day, I'll go out, oh, the sun's shining, isn't it great, the birds are singing, there's a cuckoo, what's that, a big dark cloud, it's going to rain, I'm going to get soaked, oh, crash, bang, wallop, major storm, I'll take shelter, wait, it stopped, the birds sing again, I'll come out, it's Beethoven Pastoral Symphony, that's, that's what it is, up to Mahler. Mahler comes along and introduces the concept of irony, the musical application of irony, which irony by um, Samuel Johnson's definition, check it when I go, um, is the ability to say one thing and infer another, Mm -hmm. to convey two meanings possibly contradictory in a single statement. And Mahler does this for the first time in his very first symphony, and he carries on doing it until he drops. (laughs) The idea that something that appears as simple as music, a line, a tune, a song, has can have a secondary meaning beyond what you're singing, beyond what you're playing, is fabulous. Yeah. Because this isn't harmony, this is this isn't counterpoint. This is a second piece playing at the same time, or the same piece piece playing two meanings. The classic example is the the Adagietto, the slow movement of his Fifth Symphony, which these days has a kind of funereal atmosphere to it. And you ask an audience, well, what does that remind you of? And what does what it make you think? It makes you think of sadness, of mourning, of nostalgia, of loss. 
Uh, it was played at Bobby Kennedy's funeral, so it became the great American work of mourning. Um, Marla wrote it as a love letter. Huh. Okay. Ki aza kamavit ahava, Song of Songs. Exactly. Love is harsh as death. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Amazing. And what is he saying? He's saying love and loss are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. Wow. And unless you know loss, you can't experience love. Unless you have love, you must anticipate loss. You are there in that in 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 that intertwining of the two. And the, the central theme of the, the opening theme of the Arashiato is derived from a song that he wrote at that time and that he sent to to the girl he was going to marry. And the words of the song Begins in Schmin der Welt abhanden gekommen. I am apart from the world. I am. I've separated myself from the world. In other words, I love you. You're going to marry me, but you're never going to have more than a part of me, mm. or even a, a little part of me. I can always withdraw it. Mm. I'm still me. However much I may give myself to you, you're going to have to accept the essential contradiction mm. that, however close we come, it's an interface, we, but not the entirety. That's it. Mm. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. The the possibility of total union mm. is beyond us as human beings. Where do you get that from? You only learn that in music. Wow. You know, it's so interesting. As I, as this conversation is unfolding, yeah. I mean, my mind is trained to find themes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what I. Yeah. And um, you know, I'm conscious that we've we've been speaking. One thing that's been a ribbon that has been running through, mm. you know, our sharing today has been this concept of beyond, mm. whether it's transcendent, whether it is the, the question of, you know, unity, that you have full, full connection, uh, the, that which came before us, that which will go on after us, this question of beyond. And, and, and at one point, you know, there was, there, you know, we were talking about the individual and, and that we are never just us, you know, that we're not holding ourselves up by our own bootstraps that there is this more than a world beyond, right? There is just more that we yeah. don't necessarily have full conscious of, that we do not hold between our ears. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, listening to you uh, speak about so much of what it is that you've spoken about, but music somehow brings this to us in a way that few other things do. Um and I have a better understanding now of, of your immersion in it, of, of your love of it, of, you know, I, I think it was Benjamin Zander, also I think a great interpreter of mm. Mahler and, mm-hmm. and Beethoven, who said, everybody loves classical music, they just don't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think that that's kind of also what it was that, 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 he, was, that he was getting to. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of this, uh, this little story in in the prophets that's told where Elisha who's the student of Elijah the prophet you know he's got to do this thing like uh like Bach who he's got to write these cantatas on demand yeah. essentially for him it means that he has to give these prophecies on demand and so he just makes sure that he has music on the side whenever he's got to do that it's astonishing that that's that's what he uses in order to be able to open up this this space beyond himself and and it makes me want to go listen <laughs> it makes yes. me want to go listen yeah. i'm conscious also that you know we're speaking now in a time that for the jewish people is a time of mourning and one of the one of the uh the elements that the rabbis kind of gave us during this time to keep us essentially in the mourning period was to remove music mm. they've said hold the music <laughs> for for this time and now i 
I'm a bit more conscious about what that might do for us on a human level. Yeah. Um, I made a series a few years ago for the BBC called Music and the Jews. And one of the ideas that I explored was this ban on music that befell with the destruction of the Second Temple. The rabbi said, uh, this is going to be a mourning for generations. Yeah. And being mourning, yeah. we don't listen to music. Yeah, they actually so, said this. I, I, I mean, just to so that mm. people, this meant... No music for Jews. Like, exactly. <laughs> like, no, exactly. Ever. Exactly. And, and just, we weren't able to manage that. No, no. <laughs> we weren't able to manage you know, So we, we, firstly, firstly yeah. we try and sneak things in, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we devise a system yeah. of singing scriptures mm-hmm. so that we can, we, we say, well, you ought to put a tune to them because otherwise you won't remember them. Mm. All right? So we have tropes and the Masoretes sort that out in Tiberius in the 6th century. So we have a little bit of music over there. But still as late as Maimonides, mm. 12th century, Maimonides, do you say no music? Mm. No music. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then something happens. Because in the world that you grew up in, in the world that I grew up in, there was a lot of music. There was singing at table. We can't separate the idea of Shabbat from the idea of singing. Yeah. First of all, you sing in synagogue on Friday night, and then you come home and you carry on singing. And basically, you don't stop singing until after the Shabbat has gone out, and then you've got a few more songs to just to soften you up for the week. So what is that transition? And I, I puzzled over it for a while, and then I, I took my crew up to the cemetery in Tzfat, where beside each other, are the two great masters of Jewish thinking in the 16th century. One is the Ariza Litzchak Luria, who is the great master of mysticism, and the other is the Bet Yosef, Yosef Karo, author of the Shulchan Aruch, which is basically the guide to -to day-to-day Jewish living. You want to be a Jew, this is how you do it. The Sephardic Jews just call him Maran. Maran, exactly. Exactly. So these, these two immense figures have their own corner of, you won't have been there because you're a Kohen. I'll yeah. have to describe it to you. They have their own. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the courtesy. I it, is, it, it, is, it is the most amazing. I'm, I'm just going to conscious for our <laughs> listeners because there are people who may not. Uh, Kohen means that I, I guess her, uh, my lineage, at least it's supposed to have come from the priestly uh, caste of, you know, in, 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 in the nation of Israel. And there is, a, there is a, a prohibition for the Kohanim or the priestly individuals to come close to a cemetery or dead bodies. And so that's why Norman is saying that I wouldn't have gone. Yeah. So he's, he's kindly describing for me what I, what I was, would never see on my own. Yeah. Carry on. So, so, I mean, this is one of the, one of the world's great cemeteries. Uh, uh, Among the Jews, it's considered so holy that they built a mikveh, a a ritual immersion bath at the entrance to the cemetery. So which you can immerse yourself before you go to visit the graves. And then you immerse yourself afterwards again when you, when you come out of there. The high point, Literally the high point of the cemetery because it's it's the highest uh, the highest graves are these two, the Arizal and and Maran the Bet Yosef, two greatest authorities of of Jewish thinking for the past five hundred years, and there is a third person who's buried with them, and it's the musician, Rabbi Shlomo El Kabitz, who wrote the anthem Lachadodi, yeah. with which we greet the arrival of of the Sabbath. And we know that Lachadodi has to have music to it. It is, it is written in such strophic terms, it can only have been written with music in mind. So at this point, these two great authorities on Jewish life have given the musician not just the permission 
to reintroduce music to Jewish life despite all the previous bans, but also the status that he, the musician, is buried with them on that mount. That answers for me a major question mm. that I've always had. You know, this Lechadodi, this mm. poem that you're speaking of, yeah. this is this is how, you know, this is written by this man in, in the 16th century in Svat. Mm. It's a poem. You yeah. know, I mean, there are there are thousands of poems that have been written in the Jewish world over the years. Yeah. And this man's poem becomes a fixture in every single Jewish sect, in every, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, yep. you're opening the Sabbath with Lechadodi. And, yeah. I, you know, it's hard to, to uh, express just how much of an anomaly that is. There are very few things that just everybody accepts in the Jewish world. <laughs> no, yeah. Nothing is unanimous in the Jewish world. Uh, and this, you know, has come. And so that's, that's uh, such an insight for me to, to kind of get a sense of why that might be. You know, it's just, uh, it's remarkable. It know? is, it is. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's, it's regenerative. Mm. Yes. Because yes. you see it at that yes. point. And from that point onwards... Um, the poem itself is very much about regeneration. Of course and, uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Of course. Of course. Wow. It's about regeneration. It's about peace and happiness in, in, in the bosom of your family and your community. And it's about a, a new world, a better world, a way forward. So we're talking about this unique and, um, you know, illustrious place that music holds in the human in the human mind in the human condition and experience. The last thing that we would want to do, I imagine, is cheapen it. Mm. And yet we have uh, today, I mean, I grew up with, you know, Tower Records. I grew up in LA. Mm. You know, Tower <laughs> Records was like the mecca of music, uh, you know, of records and, and, and music sales and so on. And I, I remember going up towards Sunset to by my first, I think my first record was a Whitney Houston record, actually, Whoa. that I bought. <laughs> yeah, it was her first record. Yeah. Um, and it was an experience. You know, you brought a record home. This was, wow, you have, you have this, 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 this thing, this item that you can now put onto your record player and put the needle down. And now you have this music. And, you know, of course myself, but I watched my children that never had that experience. Um, you know, they're on Spotify, they're on YouTube. They can literally send music, download music, listen to music uh, at a touch yep. and almost any music that they want. Yep. You are, you know, your, your, whole, your whole world is, is, is music. You know, you're writing a, a blog that is the number one, uh, you know, in the world, in, in, in the news, in, in this world. Are we cheapening music? by this coming out, by Spotify, by YouTube, by this complete and open accessibility to music, or is it enhancing and bettering uh, music for us? I don't think, um, I don't think we can cheapen music. Music, music is music is music. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it exists and it transcends us. It was there before us and it'll be there after us. Um, what changes is the different ways that we use it. So until the end of the 19th century, the only way to access music was either to listen to somebody else making it or to make it yourself. Um, and there was a great dependence on sheet music, so you could bring it home and you could play it at the piano or the harmonium or whatever it was. Then the, the, the record industry comes into being, and the record industry invents its own um, rituals, mm -hmm. almost synagogue ceremonial rituals okay. of how you listen to music. You open the lid of the record player, you... 
pick up the, uh, the arm, you check the stylus, you then place the record with great care. On yeah, uh, yes, yeah. on hold the, the edges uh, only. Hold the edges. I remember hold being scared edges. to death. Only to that's right. You yeah. check the speeds, and then and only then do you lift the arm and you raise it with with surgical precision yeah. onto the record. <laughs> and then and then you stand back and and you say, look at the wonderful music I have made. <laughs> <laughs> you you have actually you've you've given yourself the illusion of owning the music mm -hmm. in the same way as in synagogue or in church, the celebrant gives themselves the illusion of having owned the service. You haven't owned the service. That's brilliant. You, I had never thought of it that way. So they create a ritual yes, around music yes, to, to, yes, to hold ownership. Yes, so yes. in a sense, what you're saying, not mm. to put, you know, you'll qualify as, mm. but it's, I, what it sounds to me like you're saying is that it's liberated music. Yes, of course it is. Yeah. From yeah. possessiveness. From possession. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. It, so this, it, is a, this, this is a positive this made, development. Yes, of course it is. Okay. Because this is what made music material. It made it physical. It made it tangible. Mm. It made you feel, any individual feel, this is my music. Mm. I own it. Absolutely now, so. That was definitely the experience. Right. Yep. Yeah. But now it's gone back to a more primal state where nobody owes it. It's there in the world. You press a button. It's on your phone. Mm. It's, it's about your person. It's in your pocket. Mm. And so the music can then be a part of you, carried along with you, within you almost. And if you say that this is my music, what you're now saying if you have it on your Spotify or you have it on your phone or you have it on your iDrip collection, I define myself by these works of music. Put these pieces of music together and within them and within each of them you will find something of me and together you will find a portrait of me. Wow. So you are conducting an act of Freudian autoanalysis by means of the music on your phone. That is unbelievable. I, that is a tremendous insight. It's almost as though it's this, you know, this modern coat of arms. You know, you can tell tell someone's personality by what it is that they've got. That's how right. Listening. That's yeah. and the other distortion. You know more, but you actually, you know, what what's happens, what, what actually happens with Spotify, mm -hmm. what they do, which is interesting, is they show you the music you've been listening to, and all of a sudden they say, hey, this is you. And you're like, that's me? <laughs> I've been listening to that? It's amazing. <laughs> but, but, but it's also created this, um, this distortion. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes music a kind of value. Because if you are a person without music, if somebody says, what is your favorite piece of music, and you don't know, then you're a non-person. Because modern society has dictated that you must be a person with music. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you talk about owning the, the LPs or the records. I've got, you know, my kids and students of mine who are 20, in their early 20s are all buying records again. They're all, you know, they're they're kind of moving. I mean, of course, they're still using Spotify and YouTube, mm -hmm. but there they've got this love of the of owning the record player, getting the records. Now, how do you see that? They, they have this urge for the material. Uh -huh. The ethereal is no longer enough for us. They, they are reverting <laughs> to they're to grounding kind, themselves exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, we can we can analyze this in Marxist terms. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> but they are they are reverting to a need for physical contact. Mm -hmm where actually music can exist purely in the ethereal realm. And we, we, you know, we have to make choices. I personally prefer to use CDs rather than to download things from streaming, but uh, just because it's easier to catalog them that way in my mind. Yeah. But how else do you catalog things? How else do you keep things in your mind? Um, 
It's fascinating to me that you say that because, you know, I think that if you were to ask the majority of them, they would say, well, I like the sound. I like the sound. I'm like, the sound, we waited forever to get away from that sound. The, yeah. You know, but I, I, I'm sure that there is absolutely something to the, you know, to the grounding and the physical aspect well, of it. Well, absolutely. You you, if you were to ask me about a particular work of Beethoven, my mind would automatically and unconsciously go to where it sits on my shelf. Ah. I can't think of it as being out there yeah. in the outer space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or as an opus number, or somewhere between the fourth and fifth symphonies. No, mm-hmm. it has to be as a presence mm-hmm. on my shelf in my in my workspace. Mm-hmm. That's where it is. You know, and, I cannot help. I mean, as mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, you know, coming from my rabbinic perspective of it, mm-hmm. I cannot help because as you are speaking, mm-hmm. the golden calf comes into my mind yes. because the problem, right? I yes. mean, the problem yes. was is that yeah. the physical Moses and the physical yes. presence had just been completely taken from them, and so here they are, these people that are, you know, that are just out of slavery in Egypt, yeah. living entirely in intellectual, uh, you know, ethereal, ephemeral space. Yeah, they've had and, the experience. You know, they're trying to like bring it down into a, and it, and it's funny because you know the the initial act is not mm. necessarily problematic. It's the bowing down to it, the worship of it that's the problem. That's you know, right. the, the Kuzari, Rabbi Yudah Levi, actually yeah. points this out. Yeah. He says there's no difference between the golden calf and the golden cherubs that were atop the golden ark. Mm. You know, they're, they they get to stay. You know, yeah. but the but the golden the golden calf yeah. is out, and the only reason for that, he says, is because this was you know a projection and a worship and a loss of the context, the the place or the stimulus that this was meant to be, and it itself became the god. Because they yeah. cherished the material thing yeah, above yeah, the yeah, idea. Yeah. They couldn't access the idea except through a material object. Yeah. And then yeah, the material object became. And, and Moses doesn't let them forget it. And this, <laughs> this week, in the beginning of his recitation of everything they've been through together, he said, I'm going to give you the whole of the relationship. And he said, then we went from here, and then we went from there, and then we went to, to a place called Dizahav, hmm. the something of gold. Hmm. And the Aramaic translation says golden calf. Yeah. Golden calf. You know, I'm telling you our history. Don't forget the golden calf. Don't forget, don't forget what yeah. you did to me. Yeah. Yeah. You can have a record. Don't worship it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Have a record. Tear, yeah. tear the, keep the sleeve. Keep the sleeve. <laughs> but what I cherish is the musicality of everything. Every single thing that we do, you put your arm on the on the uh, arm of the sofa, and that's a musical action. Um, and you hear it as musical, actually. You're not aware that you hear it as musical, actually. There have been some composers who've tried to notate this. There was a wonderful Czech composer called Leos Janáček, who would go down to the market every day in Brno with a little notebook in his hand. And somebody would say, good morning, Mr. Janáček. Good morning, Mr. Janáček. Uh, and, and in his operas, he tried to accurately represent the musicality of everyday speech. And these things are so important because not just because of the, the way that we hear them, um, and that they are the music of our everyday lives so because they actually give us the meaning. Mm-hmm. This is what enables us to convey an idea in language from one to another. It's not just that I'm talking to you. I'm also, I'm inflecting my voice in certain ways. I mean, I'm, in, I'm changing the notes mm-hmm. within the things that I'm saying to you. Mm-hmm. The mu- it's the music that's giving you the meaning as much as the words that I'm saying to you. It reminds me of another thing Xander said, that uh, nobody's tone deaf. If you were tone deaf, Mm. then you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between mother's voice and not mother's voice. You wouldn't be able to tell when someone is asking a question. They raise... They raise it at the end. Sure. Yeah, we, we it's a cop-out. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's no... 
Yeah, the basic credo of Judaism begins with listening. Shema Israel. Yeah. Listen, Israel. What exactly? Yeah. What are you listening to? You're listening to the music. Mm. And doesn't that manifest in language? I mean, isn't 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 language so much about the music? Yeah, of it. Yeah, language is about music, and it's about um, it's about structure, and it's about the way we tell stories. Mm. And in classical Hebrew, I mean, modern Hebrew has gone through the hands of German and Russian grammarians. Uh, so that it bears very little resemblance to classical Hebrew. And of course, classical Hebrew couldn't possibly be used in a modern technological world. But classical Hebrew, everything is in the present continuous. Yeah. There are no tenses. Yeah. So there is no before, there is no during, there is no after. Everything is during. Because everything is during, it is participatory. Mm-hmm. The reason it's phrased in the continuous is that we're expected to be part of it. We are not just a part of God's creation. We are participants in God's creation. It's not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. If we have a purpose in life, it is to help the continuance of creation. So we are, in essence, partners with God in creation. We are, yeah, junior partners, but yeah, partners. And, and, And that purpose gives our lives meaning. You've been listening to Humans Being with me, Joseph Dweck. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out the links in the show notes for more information. This episode is dedicated in memory of Samuel Adwar, Shmuel Ben Yosef, by Keith and Lauren Breslauer.